Hello, everyone. This is Joyce Davis, Pin Live's opinion editor, coming to you with another Battleground PA podcast. Today, we have a special guest, a young progressive who's going to try to explain to us old people just why they may be looking to support Biden or perhaps giving an eye to Donald Trump. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with another Battleground PA podcast. This is Battleground PA, a Penn Live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Okay, we are back, and I want to welcome again all of our Penn Live readers and who are now listeners. And we are delighted that we have once again our anchors. Jeffrey Lord of Republican fame. Hello, Jeffrey. Nice to see you here. Hello there, Joyce. And of course, he's dutifully at home and self-distancing. And we also have Rajette Harris, who is our Democratic analyst. Welcome, Rajette. Hello. Today, we also, I've invited Daniel Dubay. He is the political director of an organization called PA Stands Up. And he describes himself as a 36-year-old millennial. He's a parent and a supporter of Bernie Sanders. Daniel, can I call you Dan? Welcome. Hey, yeah, Dan is fine. Thank you very much, Joyce. Glad to join you. It's so nice to have you here. And we're going to talk about any number of things. But let me just tell our listeners, if you want to participate and join us, there are several ways to do so. You can send us an email. Topics at battlegroundpa.org. You can send us a tweet or join us on Facebook at Battleground PA. So with that housekeeping, let's get right into it. Dan, we invited you to come on because there is a lot of discussion about whether the young progressives, whether they will find it in their hearts to move away from Bernie Sanders and to embrace Joe Biden, who is not as exciting, it seems, as Bernie Sanders is. Let's just start off by your telling us how the young progressives are thinking right now, what's on your mind, and, uh, and then we'll get our analysts to chime in there. Great. Yeah. No, thank you again for, for having me on the show. Um, you know, I think there's a lot at stake here for, for younger folks. And I think when we, when we talk about younger folks, you know, I'm 36, uh, which, you know, it seems like the older I get, the broader the group of young people get. But I'm seven years older than Joe Biden was when he got elected to the Senate. And I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, we have kind of a glut in the leadership of this country where you have folks that have been in power. You know, Joe Biden has been around for 50 years. And over that span, we have seen income inequality just completely expand to where you have more and more people who are working just as hard and being more productive than ever. And they're not seeing the rewards of that. And so when you look at that issue or you look at climate change, you know, I think the paradox that progressive voters are in is that what they don't see at the ballot box is anybody who's offering solutions that match the problems that they're facing in their personal lives or the global problems that we face, even with COVID. Dan, that makes sense. Basically, what you're saying is you don't really see the leadership, the older leadership answering the questions, the problems of the modern day. And yet, Bernie is one of the oldest. So, you know, it's not age, right? It's basically ideas and energy, I guess. That's true. And I think it could be really easy to fall into a trap of making this exclusively about age. 
But look, I grew up firmly within the Republican revolution, right? Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over. And yet in the last couple of weeks, the government passed a bill to move $2 trillion like it was nothing. Nobody asked how we would pay for it. And I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the culmination of saying the government is bad doesn't reflect the truth, which is that government is up by and for the people. And when it's not up by and for the people, what you have is, is people who are discontented. And I think that's what you see reflected in the aggregate in the Democratic primary. Now, Dan, I want to bring in our analysts here, uh, Rojette and Jeffrey, for their comments on this. But before we do, what is PA Stands Up? Is that a new organization? Are you talking about a new political party? Or what, what is PA Stands Up? And what are your main issues? So Pennsylvania Stands Up, what we are is we do community organizing. And what that looks like is working with our chapters. We have nine across the state of Pennsylvania and over a thousand dues-paying members. And it's not about creating a new political party. It's about finding political solutions in the public arena by coming together and identifying the problems that we all share and then finding a way to, to solve those problems and to find some sort of healing for all of the pain that we have from the public arena. So it's really about working with individuals to find their true leadership within the political sphere and in the social sphere. Are you bipartisan or are you only Democratic? We're boldly progressive. Certainly, if you talk to members of the Democratic Party, there are many folks who find us pretty insurgent. I would say that it is very unlikely that the current Republican Party would garner much support from us at this point. All right. Did you hear that, Jeffrey? Is there a chance that Trump could pull in some of these voters? I'd like to hear your thoughts, because the last time we talked, you said they just might find some of the things that President Trump is talking about attractive. Well, they might. Here's the thing. I mean, I when you sort of pull back to 30,000 feet and look back through American history, these kind of movements have been here before on both the left and the right. And generally what happens is they become a precursor to the future direction of whichever party is involved. You look at the Democratic Party or the it wasn't the Democratic Party, it was the Progressive Party, as I recall, in the late 1800s. And they lost, you know, they managed to get William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic nomination for president in 1896. And I think again in 1900, et cetera. He lost. But what he did do was provide the groundwork for the Wilson administration, Woodrow Wilson administration in 1912 and the progressive agenda. The same sort of thing happened again with Franklin Roosevelt and the Republican Party with Barry Goldwater and the coming of Ronald Reagan and all this kind of thing. So I, I listened to Dan and I, I listened to you know all the Bernie Sanders folks. I think this is the future of the Democratic Party and they're in the process of making it the future. And you've got a Democratic establishment that is, to say the least, uncomfortable with some of this. And so how this plays out in the fall will be very interesting because I think you will get – I've already seen some stories where, where Bernie supporters just said flatly, no, they're not going to support Joe Biden, period. It doesn't necessarily mean that they'll vote for Donald Trump, but it does mean that there's a split there. And that, of course, in the end helps Donald Trump. Well, let's bring in Rajet. Rajet, are, are traditional Democrats a little bit uncomfortable with folks like Dan? No, because we need Dan and we need progressives to win this race. I do think that there's always been a progressive wing of the Democratic Party. We can argue whether or not the wing might be a little louder now. But as I mentioned last week, I loved Bernie's tone when he officially dropped out of the race. And President Obama mentioned it in his video when he endorsed Joe Biden yesterday as well. This election is bigger than any one person. It's not about an individual, particular individual being president. It's about 
in my opinion, replacing Donald Trump, who has failed leadership since he's been president. That's something that progressives, moderates, Democratic conservatives can all agree on. And it's going to be up to Joe Biden and the Democrat Party to reach out to Bernie Sanders, his supporters. I'm not saying they should just vote for Joe Biden because he's not Donald Trump. But I do think that the two sides will be working together, particularly with the platform. It was in the news yesterday that Bernie has been talking to President Obama and Joe Biden for a month. You know, we don't know everything that happens behind the scenes. But I do think the two signs in the end will come together so we can defeat Donald Trump in November. Let's delve into some of the issues that the progressives want. I'll tell you one thing. In my household, you know, there was a pretty hot and heavy debate going on about Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And my position was that, oh, these ideas are great, but who's going to pay for them? Where's the money going to come from? And yet, Here we are, $2 trillion into probably another $2 trillion. And money seems to come when you need it and when the values are there. So I'm wondering if this is causing even traditional Democrats to rethink. Maybe we can find money for all those lofty ideas we have. Dan, what do you see as the main things that are going to make progressives sit up and say, yeah, we're excited now about the candidate for president? Part of my background is I've spent a lot of time in the field knocking on doors. Like I've literally knocked on personally hundreds of thousands of doors. And the biggest thing you hear when you go and talk to people is, you know, maybe they were real excited about President Obama or, you know, at different times, maybe even Trump. But the truth is, is that for most people, they say, you know what, my life hasn't changed that much. And so when you look at things that Bernie Sanders was supporting, things like Medicare for all, like that goes right to the heart of what people have the most fear about. I mean, I can say for me personally, I had a child who was born with like a slight medical problem when they were born, spent a few days in the NICU. And I got a letter from the hospital that said I owed them $100,000. Oh, Um, my goodness. Right. And my insurance picked up a lot of that, but it was still very expensive. But that would have been the end of me financially. And these are very real problems that are, you know, a public outrage. And yet, You know, what I think Biden needs to do is to speak to some of those very real problems across the board. He's going to have any chance of bringing new folks in, not just progressives, but maybe people who are sitting out in general because they just don't see politics as something that affects their lives or if it does, maybe negatively. So is insurance coverage for people the number one issue still, especially with the coronavirus? Oh, certainly. I think the the number one, I mean, you hear these tragic stories of people who go to the hospital They're fighting for their lives, and yet they're still saying they're worried about who's going to pay for it. And that is just an unbelievable travesty in the richest country in the history of the world that we can't take care of, folks. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Jeff, let's talk about this. I mean, look, you guys are actually in power. You can do something about this. What is actually being done to to address these health care issues? Well, we're in quasi-power. We don't have control of the House, and that's certainly a problem here. But I do think that this crisis is going to force a rethinking on all of this. I personally was disappointed that Republicans didn't have their act together, you know, after spending all this time in the Obama years talking about repeal and replace of Obamacare. They should have had something ready to go the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, and they didn't, and they failed. It boggled my mind that they could spend all that, all those years saying that this was what they were going to do, and then they get there, and notoriously Senator McCain gave a thumbs down after campaigning on doing exactly what he did not do. Jeffrey, the thumbs up would not have given us health care. The thumbs up just would have taken away what there is. 
you know, again, I hear what you're saying and I'm patting you on the back, frankly, because I think you do realize it's a, it's a very serious issue. But I don't really hear these ideas coming. I mean, even on the Democratic side, there really isn't a lot of consensus, is there, on what needs to be done, Rajat? One thing that the Democrat Party does agree on is that everyone should have access to good quality health care. Uh, the debate is just what's the best way to get there. Does everyone agree, even in the Republican Party, that everyone needs to have access to quality health care? Is that a consensus? Sure, opportunity, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I do think that there's a broad agreement. The question is not should they, it's how. That's the issue, and that's always been the issue. And as I say, I think that this particular situation that we are in, which is a full-blown pandemic crisis, is going to force the issue. Yeah, it's going to force the issue. I'm glad. But Dan, let me ask you this. At least on this issue, don't you have a better chance with Biden than if you guys were to look at Trump? Or, or is this idea that progressives are considering supporting Trump simply a farce? I think what you see in any election is that there's a small group of voters who cross over. You saw it in 2008 with voters who supported Hillary Clinton, then supporting McCain instead of Obama. It wasn't enough to make the difference then. I think when you have an election that's so close, like 2016, maybe it was decisive, maybe not. I think the question right now, though, is that, I, you know, when we talk about what, what Donald Trump has to offer, you know, it's, it's incoherent. I mean, I have no idea what he would actually do. He said the other day he doesn't think it's fair that people have to pay for their health care. I have, I have no idea. With Biden, still, there is a huge influence of corporate donors, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. They all donate to his campaign en masse, and they have a lot of power. The people also have power, right? The people who are concerned about, about this. What concerns me the most about the prospect of, of a Biden presidency is that we'll be looking at another patchwork. We'll be looking at, at some, some marginal changes that might help a few people, but, but are not going to deal with the massive problem where you have people who, who can't get the care that they need. I think Jeffrey's right that it's this moment that we're in is a moment where we're likely to reset. We just saw that in New York State, where obviously they're facing the front line of the pandemic, they socialized the healthcare system. They took all of the separate different healthcare hospitals and companies, and they said, we can't do it this way. What's more effective is central planning in Albany and making sure that we distribute the ventilators where we need to, et cetera. So I think we're seeing that socialized medicine, just like it is in all the rest of the industrialized world, is actually the clearest answer. It's a matter of a huge financial stake for a lot of other folks. Are we really reconsidering socialism or Bernie's democratic socialism? Because, But it goes further than just healthcare, right? I mean, there are other main issues that you want to take up as progressives outside of healthcare. Can you talk a, a little bit about them? Yeah, very quickly, just to name a few. I mean, I think when you look at the higher education system in this country, in the last 10 years, the cost of public higher education in Pennsylvania has gone up by 40%. Since I went to school, the cost has nearly tripled, and that was 20 years ago. But yet, that is not because there's a lot more expenses. It's not because of a change in the way that they're doing education. It's because we're not we're not subsidizing it through public dollars the way that we used to, the way we did 50 years ago when Joe Biden could pay for his college with a summer job. And so I think, as we've seen this week, the money is there. It's just a matter of priorities. And right now, the priority is to maximize profit in healthcare, put the burden onto individuals for, for education. And that's what I think those kind of structural changes are, are the kinds of things that we fight for. We've got education, we've got health care. Is there a third? And then I'm going to let Rajet come in and chime in on this. To name a third, I think it's general welfare and well-being, right? I mean, I think that we, we have absolutely a meager set of safety nets and people right now are pouring through the cracks. 
Pennsylvania, for instance, has the, the highest unemployment number in total, except for California, despite being much smaller than New York and other places. So I think there's a lot more that we could do to make sure that you know, people don't feel like they're on their own. Do you agree with those three top priorities there for progressives? And, and do the wider Democrats agree with those? Um, I do agree with all three points. As I constantly say on this podcast, it's not just about the job, but the quality of that job. But I think Dan is putting a little bit too much weight on one person, just like the debate this week where uh, Trump believes that he has authority over every state. And that's not true. You know, Bernie has also been there for 30 years, along with Biden. But one thing that Biden has done is he is starting to incorporate, at least on higher education and climate change, some of Bernie's policy ideas into his own platform. I would also like to bring up the fact that even though the Affordable Care Act isn't perfect, and yes, it does need modified, he was vice president and he was there on the fight to at least start the process of making sure everyone gets health care. So it's not like Joe Biden hasn't done anything for health care at all. I do think that more education needs to be done on the public option because the public option, although it's not Medicare for all, it would catch the individuals who do not have health care through private insurance or through an employee or something of that nature. So I do want to stress that Joe Biden does believe in health care for all. And I do believe that these are all ideas that the Democrat Party does embrace. Very Again, good. it's just how to get there. So at least you're on the same page with the progressives about what those top issues are. So why don't we do this? Let's just take a little bit of a break. We come back. I want to raise a very big issue big government, because in times of crisis, it seems as if we don't have a problem with big government helping us out. So let's break right here, and I'll come back shortly to resume our conversation. Okay, we're back. And if you'd like to join us, there are several ways to do so. You can send us an email at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Or you can join us on Twitter or Facebook at Battleground PA. So here we are again with Regette Harris, Jeffrey Lord, and Daniel Dubay, who's political director of PA Stands Up. And we're talking about the issues that are important to progressives and whether these progressives, these young Democratic progressives, will find a way to support Joe Biden or if they are looking for alternatives or are so disenfranchised or disenchanted that they'll give up. We were talking now about what more government can or should do, especially in times of crisis. I want to throw this at Jeffrey. Jeffrey, I know as a Republican, you you really do think that government should be restrained. It should get out of the way. But right now, are people like you even rethinking, is there a stronger role, for example, for government to play, first of all, in looking ahead and having things ready for these kinds of major crises? It's actually forecasting them and being prepared and then supporting, getting there and being the centralized solution for the problem. What, what are your thoughts on that, Jeffrey? The point is that this is not the norm and it should never be the norm. Government should be there in a crisis. This is a crisis. This is a moment where government should step up. But when the crisis goes away, you don't want this all to linger. You want people to be able to get back to their lives. You want to be able to have them do their life the way they choose to live it, aside from the fact that it can be, I mean, at some point, we are going to have to pay for this. 
And as somebody who worked in Washington a long time, I can tell you how this manifests itself. And I think I've said this before on the show. Somebody, some congressman wakes up some morning and sees a kid with a runny nose and introduces legislation to establish the Department for Kids with Runny Noses. They pass the bill. They build a concrete monolith that's about 10 stories tall. They fill it with people who are making a hundred grand a year, and then they start issuing rules for everybody in America to obey. That's, Jeffrey, that's the, you, you that's the principle. That I get that. You've said that before, but I, actually at this point, I, I think that's trivializing a problem. Here we have a, a huge pandemic going on. We need a bureaucracy that's going to deal with pandemics. I mean, it's one thing. Well, we have one. We, we have it. Fingernail, but we have we, it. It's we, called we, the Department of Health and Human Services. Only federal government, it seems, has the resources to be able to address something like this. I don't know. To act like in the normal times the government doesn't have a role or that there there is that's the time to let things go privately. You know, when you look at the healthcare systems across this country, they don't have enough masks, PPEs, ventilators. And over decades, as they become more and more private and there is more and more wealth in smaller hands, they've been paying themselves millions of dollars. You go to a UPMC facility in Erie, there are waterfalls, there are all kinds of things that are superfluous and unnecessary. That's what the private sector has done. And yet they couldn't find the money to keep a stock house or, or a warehouse full of gloves and masks in case there was a pandemic. I mean, this was this was something that was that happens every hundred years or so. This well, is yeah, but, but if you look at the state of New York, for example, right. Governor Cuomo says they didn't have this, they didn't have that. Well, what they did have were millions of dollars for a solar plant near Buffalo. Sure. What did that have to do with anything? Nothing. Right. What does Nothing. that have to do with anything? The healthcare systems that were privatized were the ones that should have been preparing for this. And if they didn't have the, if they had the resources to pay hospital administrators hundreds of thousands of dollars, they could have found 50 cent masks when there wasn't an emergency and kept those on lock. My point is just that, you know, whether it be in the healthcare system or it be my bank, you know, I find that an institution is only as good as the people who run it. They operate differently. But look, I spent half an hour trying to log on to my bank account, which is completely privately run by one of the biggest banks in the country. I can't get onto it because they're having problems. Every institution is only as good as the people who operate it. It's not a, like the ideological thing of saying that government is bad is an extraordinarily extreme position. And it is left over decades has left us extremely vulnerable, which is why the United States is facing a much bigger burden than many other places across the world is because we were grossly unprepared for this. And well, I, I have three points. The first point is we're ignoring the elephant in the room, which is that the president, Donald Trump, completely trivialized this when it first occurred. Preparation for this shouldn't be made late last year. Second of all, regarding the stimulus package that was passed, if you're going to shut everything down and people aren't able to work, the government needs to step in and help people keep their homes, to help them feed their families, to help them continue to live. There really is no choice. And I'd like to bring up how there was supposed to be another stimulus package uh, passed last week. But again, the Democrats had to stop it because the Republicans were only focused on giving money, more money to corporations and businesses rather to the hospitals and the local governments to ensure that protective gear and equipment are ready. So there is definitely a place for government. But I also want to bring up a point that I bring up all the time. It's not just the presidency. That's why I keep saying we're putting too much focus on one person. It's also the House and the Senate. And as long as Mitch McConnell is ahead of the Senate, there's not going to be any change. 
Or as long as Nancy Pelosi is speaker, there's not going to be any change. <laughs> All right. So, so we've got a problem, but it's very clear that honestly, we, we do have a problem. This is a crisis that is not being addressed. It's not really being addressed in the great American fashion that we would expect. But let, let's move on from here. And I want to talk a little bit more about today. We're, we're expected to hear that Elizabeth Warren is going to officially endorse former Vice President Joe Biden. Is that likely, to Dan, to have any impact at all on whether young progressives will get behind him? I actually think that increasingly endorsements mean less and less, right? I, I think that people... Even if Obama comes out and endorses them? I think in general, people make up their own minds. And that is that is not to say that Elizabeth Warren endorsing is, is a bad thing or that it won't help to bring some people into the fold. But at the end of the day... You know, I, when I talk to voters, the things that are on their minds are not who supports who. It's it's who's going to help make sure that I don't have to be crippled by medical debt. Who's going to make sure that we have an inhabitable planet in 10 years? And like and those and those issues that are raw and real for them are the things that are going to drive how they vote or not. And and that is is what's at the top of mind. I think it's good that people are consolidating. But at the end of the day, voters make up their own minds and we have to respect them. And so it's going to really I just be think her endorsement is too late. I just think it's too late. She's doing the endorsement after Bernie already dropped out. So who else is she going to endorse? I think we're the met more she would have endorsed him when she originally dropped out. And I think it depends on who the endorsement is. For example, Congressman Clyburn's endorsement made a huge difference in South Carolina for Joe Biden, I would argue, particularly among the African-American community that kind of propelled him to the nomination. Um, so it depends on who that endorsement comes from. That's a very good point, because I, I agree with you. Well, let's see. I mean, it, at least she should say something. I mean, she may be saying it too late, but she can't just sit back and say nothing. I think she was trying to uh, figure out which way the wind was blowing is what it seems. So anyway, let, let's move on. I also want to talk about several bits of news. One, that uh, the president is going to have his name placed on the stimulus checks to make sure that people know it's coming from him. Jeffrey, really, is that <laughs> Oh, when I saw that, I confess, I just, I just laughed. I, I mean, this is what presidents do. I remember in the summer of 1969, when I was newly graduated from high school, and the entire world was watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins circle the moon and then land on the moon and all of this sort of thing. What was the New York Times outraged about? They left a plaque on the moon that said uh, something like, we come on behalf of mankind uh, in peace, signed Richard Nixon. <laughs> and they, they, they wrote an editorial called Nixoning the Moon. You know, the Johnson Space Center, the Kennedy Space Center, uh, you know, this is something that goes on with American presidents, and I don't really see anything you know, I, different. There's a strategy here that's like, oh, people will be so excited to get this check with my name on it. And yet $1,200 is not going to cover the rent for three months for anybody. If you're somebody who's a server or uh, someone who's been out of work through this entire span, there's a downside here, which I don't think he's quite getting, which is that this is grossly inadequate to meet people's needs. People receive a check for $1,200 that's not going to make the rent, let alone the other needs that people need to make. I think there's going to be a bit What more they need is a restarted economy with a job. Right. Well, I think that when people physically can't work, that that becomes a problem. And, and in the meantime, people's needs aren't being met. And I think that's a slow burn of this thing that I think for folks that can work from home, for folks that are a little bit more comfortable, you may not see. 
But there are people who are like literally on the edge here. And while $1,200 is something that will be net, like extremely welcomed, it's not nearly enough. And I think that putting your name and your stamp on this inadequate check is actually a double-edged sword. And that's why I brought up the stimulus, the second stimulus packet last week. And I know everyone kind of chuckled when I said about Mitch McConnell and the Senate, but it's about the priorities of the two parties. The Republicans want to put more money into corporations and businesses. The Democrats were trying to put more money into hospitals, local governments, and also the uh, working families, meaning those who are hurting the most economically from this. Um, there are even some people, a lot of people haven't even received their checks yet. It seems to depend on the party of the governor <laughs> of a particular state as to how soon you're even getting this check. Regarding the Trump putting his name on the checks, I mean, he's a narcissist, just like he stands up there every day patting himself on the back, saying what a great job he's doing with this pandemic. And to be honest, it seems like he's the only one that even thinks he's doing a great a great job with it. I do agree with Dan, though, that there are a lot of people hurting, um, not just uh, health wise, but economically from this pandemic. And, you know, we need leadership to help get the country through this. I seem to remember the last president giving a speech in which he interrupted himself and said, thank you, Obama. (laughs) I think this is something. But but he didn't do it every night, Jeffrey. He doesn't do it every (laughs) night. Even people who like I know people who like Donald Trump that will say he's a narcissist. (laughs) I mean, that's just a fact. Rosette said, which I think is important to the to the germane of the topic, which is, look, at the end of the day, when we're talking about where progressives will line up in this election, there is a difference between the parties. It's a material difference, and the priorities are stark. The Republicans are are speaking to the needs of corporations. You know, Jeffrey's line there about the best thing we need to do is give people a job. And it's like, if you're a server, that could still be weeks and months off. I think there is a distinction that the progressives will make. The question is whether it goes far enough. And I think for a lot of folks, if they're looking at their lives, maybe it doesn't, but there's still a stark choice there. To be able to influence the national dialogue, the, the power that we have has no effect on what Mitch McConnell thinks. And also, to Bridget's point, they need us. And so we do have some leverage with Biden to move things. And I think that is the power dynamic that's at play as we go into November. So what I'm hearing, just because so, I want to move on to one of it. So what I'm hearing is that progressives are going to continue to push their agenda, but they have a better chance of having that agenda be uh, actually influence a president under Biden than it would be under Trump. Is that a fair statement, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the calculus that every voter, every progressive voter is going to make is whether they can, you know, we every election is us showing our hands, right? It's showing, putting our cards on the table. Here's the people that we have. And it's enough to make an impact on this election. And so the question for, for every progressive voter is who benefits from me sitting out, who benefits from me taking action, who benefits from my vote, and how am I going to use that to uh, make an impact going forward? Okay, the last thing I, I really do want us to, to focus in on just quickly is, you know, what kind of progress are we making on getting this virus under control? And yes, on reopening our country and getting back to work. But I will tell you, Jeffrey, if you and I, you know, we're both uh, of the same age group and over 60, and I'm not going to feel comfortable, even if the, the business is open, walking back out unless I know this virus is contained. Whether an announcement is made that we go back to things as normal does not mean people will go back to things as normal. We've got to have something that reassures people when they step into a restaurant, they step into a business, they will not pick up a virus that will kill them. 
So I hear you guys and I hear the president wanting to open things up, but you can't just open things up and think people will go back to business as usual. Am I wrong about that, Jeffrey? Well, in a psychological sense, no, you're not wrong. But here's one of the stories that I found quite fascinating in the last week or so, that the realization dawned in California that there was a a wave of illnesses sweeping the state in November before all of this became what it is today and people were unaware of the virus and all of this kind of thing. And in other words, it's being alleged that the virus was there then and people were going about their business every day in the state of California and there was not, you know, mass. No, it's a whole different ball game, guy. Once you know, you're not. I mean, if I don't know something, I walk right into it. And then what else can I do? But right. now, I mean, we just got an announcement today. A former school board member, Gerald Welsh, has died of this virus. This is hitting home. People I know. You know, I got a call from a woman in Perry County. She is horrible symptoms that she's describing. And she's taking care of an 82-year-old father who needs a pacemaker. Right. Oh, I don't, Real, I don't under, I don't underplay it at all. I mean, when I go out to the giant, every single person in the store has a mask on. Absolutely, it's uh, so, not so a mask and gloves. Whether things reopened, there's got to be real, a real solution. I don't see that solution coming. I don't know. Uh, and and does it make sense that we, even if we have a bone to pick, a WHO, the World Health Organization, didn't handle this perfectly? Lord knows it doesn't look like America is handling it perfectly either. Why cut off funding rather than try to support international efforts to contain this pandemic? Oh, well, that's an easy one for me uh, because I think they were deliberately dishonest. I think they were in the pocket of the Chinese and the Chinese lied to the entire world about this. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing. The point is what's practical is my question. You don't cut off to me fundings to a health, a world health organization in the middle. I'd rather have that money spent right here in this country on ventilators and that sort of thing, instead of giving it to a bunch of bureaucrats who are going to look us right straight in the eye and tell us there's no, there's no indication of human transmission, human to human transmission. That was just flatly not true. And catering to the Chinese government who've lied to us. And not just to us, I mean, to the entire world. I mean, every country in the world has been affected by this because the Chinese didn't tell us the truth. I I agree with that. Dan, go ahead. Well, the thing that I want to name is that the virus has hit us much, much worse than it has China. And the WHO is not going to like funding the WHO is not going to have an enormous impact on the United States immediately or China immediately. Where it has the most impact are in countries that have almost no or, or very little medical infrastructure. And the thing about this virus is that it lays plain the myth that we can each do this on our own, right? This, that this is a bootstrapping world and everyone can just pick themselves up by their bootstraps. If, th- if there's a flare up in six or eight weeks in, in Africa or in South Asia, that could mean that this comes back and we face another set of uh, needing to social distance. We could have a recurrence of the curve. And so what, what I see is it, right now we're at the peak of the curve and there's an appetite that, that from both people who are hungry for businesses, to, their businesses to start up and from workers who are not getting enough to meet their own individual needs to start things up. But here's the thing is that opening right now or opening too soon creates the, the potential for another bubble. And it just makes plain that this is something we have to think about as an entire civilization, as a world civilization. Uh, we can't be parsing everything to our own individual pieces. A threat to one is a threat to all. I would just like to just bring up the fact that unfortunately this virus is here and it's not going to be completely eradicated 
we are going to have have to have some type of modifications. And just like with other pandemics, we're going to have to start changing our human behavior as we learn more about this virus um, as we move forward. I do think our elected officials need to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time, meaning they need to continue dealing with the public health aspect of this. But don't wait until that's completely handled before dealing with the economic consequences or it's going to be absolutely worse. But I would like to end on a positive note. I've been watching the governor's and our health secretary's press conferences on a daily basis as well. And it seems like even though we don't have the widespread testing that we need, that the cases that are recorded are much less than what was originally projected. Um, so that's very encouraging and that the social distancing is working and hopefully that trend continues. I think there's no choice the social distancing is working. I mean, there's no choice we have to do it. But I was uh, a little bit sobered because I did see that apparently we had one of the largest death counts uh, yesterday. So we continue to hope. So once again, I want to thank Rajette Harris and I want to thank Jeffrey Lord for being our trustworthy and trusted anchors. And Dan, we thank you very much for joining us to give us that progressive view. Thank you guys. I really appreciate your participation. See you guys next week on Battleground PA. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at Battleground PA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. Battleground PA is hosted by PenLive's opinion editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michelle McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. More info and past episodes can be found at battlegroundpa.org.